Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Good evening, and my name is uh, Otene Reuti, and I work for uh, Auckland Council as a senior advisor, Māori Outcomes, and today it's my privilege to uh, begin uh, this session uh, in the way that we begin things at Council, and uh, with, with a blessing, and uh, just some thoughts around that. So. Um, there's a saying in Māori dim, Mā te rongo ka mōhio, mā te mōhio ka marama, mā te marama ka mātau, mā te mātau ka ora. What does that mean? I can hear you saying. Through perception comes awareness, through awareness comes understanding, through understanding comes knowledge through knowledge comes well-being. And as we come to have this conversation uh, this evening, uh, we have another saying in Māori that goes, ko te kai o te rangatira hi kōrero. The language of chiefs is about talking to each other. So if you want to be someone that leads people, uh, you need to be talking uh, to others. Can't do it by just talking to yourself. Uh, so this evening, um, as we come to hear this conversation, uh, I'll just open it up with a blessing uh, today. So the blessing is about um, the baskets of knowledge. So we have, um, legend tells us that Tani ascended to the heavens to bring back uh, three baskets of knowledge for mankind. So I paraphrase that to be the baskets of the knowledge of yesterday, baskets of the knowledge of today and the baskets of knowledge for the future so uh, so that uh, mankind may uh, develop and look after itself really so without much more ado I will say this blessing for us let us Ko te hōkai nuku, ko te hōkai rangi, ko te hōkai ā, tō tūpuna tāne e nuiaregi. I pikitia ai ki ngā rangi tūhāhā, ki te tihi hona manono. I roko hinga tūrā, ko i o matua kore ana kē. I riru i hoana nā kete o te wānanga, ko te kete tua uri, ko te kete tua tea, ko te kete aranui. Kā tiritiri ā, kā paupau ā, kia papatua nuku, kā puta te ira tangata ki te whaiao, ki te ao marama. Tūturu whakamaua kia tīna, tīna, haumie huie, tāi ki e. Nō reira inga mana, inga reo, rauranga tirama, haramai, haramai, nau mai, whakatau mai, i roto tēnei whare, e whare kōrero mā tātou i roto tēnei pō. Ahako te itio o tēnei rangi, kānui te mihi kia koutou. Welcome to this uh, session tonight, uh, Open Conversation, and um, even though it's the shortest day, uh, a big welcome um, to us all. Nō reira, huri no tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, a tēnā tātou katoa. Kia ora. Kia ora, and thank you for that lovely mihi. Um, Good evening, everybody. My name is Corin Dan, Tenakoto. Uh, welcome. I'll be facilitating this conversation this evening 
I love the fact that it's called a conversation because it is a chance for you guys to interact and really uh, do this together. Now, Auckland Conversations provides an opportunity to inspire and stimulate your thinking about the challenges uh, facing Auckland. Tonight, we will welcome international sustainability expert, uh, Matt Peterson, uh, who I've had the pleasure of uh, hearing from yesterday at the Green uh, Building Council's uh, summit, and it was fantastic. Uh, that is gonna be uh, a real treat. Um, it is a chance, really, to discuss the challenges we face as a city, as a country, uh, about getting climate ready, and what it could mean for this city uh, if we do not uh, do it, and if we do not do it fast enough. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us tonight. I'm totally impressed by this turnout. I would never have believed someone would suggest to me that this many people would come out on the shortest night of the year to hear a speech on climate change, and I do believe it's a sign that, um, that yeah, consciousness around climate change and climate issues is growing, uh, and that's got to be encouraging. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, just uh, there is uh, also people watching online via the uh, conversations, Auckland Conversations website. So welcome to them too. Uh, I know you're out there uh, and, and you will be enjoying this. A few housekeeping notes. Uh, first and foremost, if a baby arrives, I will keep you posted. Um, uh, I've got a highly charged a smartphone here with a thousand alerts on it. It'll be buzzing like crazy. I'm sure yours probably will be as well. Uh, now, in the unlikely event of, of an emergency, uh, an alarm will sound and will be directed out of the building by the ushers. Bathrooms are located um, outside of the upper NZI, uh, downstairs in the main foyer of Aotea. And finally, yeah, keep the mobiles on silent. The, I'm sure the alerts will still come through. Now, some thanks quickly for the sponsors tonight. Uh, yes, to the New Zealand Green Building Council, uh, who have collaborated with the Auckland Conversation on this. And our thanks too to our Auckland partner, South Base Construction, our design partner, Razine, and all our program uh, part, uh, supporters. Right, this, this is how it's going to run. Um, well, the format for tonight will be a keynote speech from Matt. Uh, who is the CEO at Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator and many, many other things. I'll brief you on him shortly. Um, followed by a discussion with our panellists. You'll see the chairs there. Uh, and then we will open up uh, the floor for questions as part of that discussion. And we're also using uh, Slido, which was uh, new to me yesterday at the conference, but um, is, a, is a great tool. It's a, an interactive tool that allows people who perhaps don't want to ask, stand up and ask a question can uh, go to the Slido website uh, and you can uh, then ask your question via that. It's pretty easy to use. You don't need an app. You just go to Slido on your browser, uh, and you'll see that you can just put in the hashtag green code, uh, and then it's really easy. You, a little box will pop up. You can put in your question. They will be uh, collated by uh, somebody else somewhere, and then they'll pop through, and I can relay them through to the panel. I strongly recommend you do it. Um, it's an excellent way to get some questions through. Now, we also... Uh, yeah, but if you do feel like standing up and having asking a question, there will be microphones available as well. Um, we also welcome you to tweet uh, in terms of the social media, keep it coming, so uh, you can hashtag that, uh, hashtag AKL conversations. Uh, so if you're out there um, watching uh, in the Twitter sphere or um, on the internet, do get involved and let us know what you think. Um, we are always trying to ensure, of course, that Auckland Conversation events are inclusive and accessible. Uh, so yeah, uh, do you, do uh, speak up, get involved, and tell us, tell us what you're thinking tonight. So, on to the conversation topic. That's uh, a big one. How climate ready are we? Auckland and New Zealand is clearly a, a highly desirable destination. It is pretty much clean and green, maybe not as much as uh, we sometimes like to think, but certainly by world standards. 
Um, we make money here from sending rockets into space. Uh, we create movies here. We're doing a lot of things very well, and we see ourselves as fun and fair. But how true is our perception of being green, innovative, and fair? And are we really ready for climate change, or are we in for a big surprise? Tonight, we're going to dive into this complex topic with the aim that we, well, I guess that we all walk away a little bit more informed, a bit more connected, uh, and a bit more inspired to act if we want to. Um, and that gives me the chance now to introduce um, Councillor Chris Darby, who would like to come up and uh, give a formal welcome. Tēnā koutou welcome everybody. Nā mihi ōtini, where did he go? For your welcome on behalf of Narifato Orake, um, and I acknowledge the hapu there. Um, look, uh, greetings to you all. It's the it's the longest winter night. Uh, we often get confused, don't we? Short, the shortest day, longest day, longest night, but it is going to be the longest night. And I understand that the solstice is at 10.27 tonight. Get ready for it. Uh, you might have a baby at the same time. Um, look, hey, thanks for coming out tonight. I do, I do want to acknowledge my councillor colleague, uh, Ross Clough, who chairs uh, finance, uh, who's here tonight, and we've just had an announcement from Council this afternoon, is related to today. Uh, we've just lodged, um, had accepted on, on the market uh, $200 million of Council green bonds, our very first green bond, uh, first green bond in the nation, and the, the market just swallowed it in three days, and they want more. Uh, so Ross's work in behind that, and the whole of the Council. Hey, thanks for coming out tonight. Thank you. Uh, also, there's a number of local board members here as well, so thank you for coming along, and they all make up our Auckland Council. Uh, so the discussion tonight, and Matt's going to be the main act leading this, of course, and um, we'll hear from him soon. Uh, Auckland, question mark, are we exposed? We sure are. Uh, and the, 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 the other part of that um, question is the trust and consequences, aspirations of a climate-ready city, Auckland. Uh, so we're here tonight all because we do care. Um, and in some way, we all care about the future of Auckland. Um, we care about the transport choices that we might have now and in the future, the quality and supply of housing, the health of our environment, and the aspirations we have for a, a climate change-ready city, and how we, can, how we can prepare ourselves for the impacts of uh, severe weather events on our properties, communities, and environment, and a lot more than the change in the weather. And I'm sure Matt will be referring to that. Climate change is no longer something that's breathing down our necks. It's not something that's coming. It's not on someone else's horizon. It's right here now. And climate change is very real every day that we live our lives from now and into the future. It affects us all, but it, particularly it affects the most vulnerable. The benefits of action look promising on paper, but the truth is that we are still early on in the path to a cleaner, uh, safer, and more equitable climate change prepared Auckland, uh, very early on. Now, sitting on our backsides, gone the old good old gluteus maximus, that is no longer an option. Um, and inertia, that raises even more serious risk. So this will affect not only our infrastructure, as we often uh, is highlighted to us, uh, it not only affects the environment, uh, it could lead to severe population health impacts. 
um, and I think we might be hearing about that too. We are working with government and we have to do this together. We do it, work with community as well, research institutes, universities, and together we need to lead the way on finding tangible solutions. We can start with transport, and we are. Energy, waste, green infrastructure, and urban regeneration, critical to Auckland. We are in the process of building rapidly now, or at least planning rapidly and about to build rapidly, a 21st century worthy uh, public transport system with rapid transit and walking and cycling at its core. And the Auckland Transport Alignment Project with government has brought us together there to assemble a $28 billion package over 10 years with investments like City to Mangari Light Rail, the Eastern Busway, uh, a bus priority program that you've never seen before, lots of improvements there, rail electrification to Pukekohe, uh, and additional trains and track upgrades. And of course, completion of the city rail link underway and a massive refocus on walking and cycling. It is gonna be a shape-shifting 10 years ahead for Auckland. There have been, and will be, and we all at Council, we must face up to this, there have been missteps along the way, and there will be more missteps along the way. We are going to make some errors along this path to being climate ready uh, Auckland, uh, and we have to acknowledge that we will make some uh, missteps. For example, nowhere in the ATAP document, the much lauded ATAP document, the Auckland Transport Alignment Project document, did the words climate change um, um, appear. They weren't, if you do a word search, it's not there. We've covered our bases, of course, with the Regional Land Transport Plan, uh, just confirmed yesterday at the Auckland Transport Board, and um, there it is solidly embedded, and we need to and must ensure a continued and prioritised focus with a coherent plan uh, of action going forward. So we've got some challenges here. We've got um, Auckland's transport network is the biggest source of emissions. For Auckland, that is, the nation is different. And we've heard from Aucklanders time and time again that the biggest challenge in Auckland is transport and hot on its heels, of course, and probably right alongside is the supply of housing and the quality of housing. Now, we're on our way to delivering some of those transport solutions, further framed by yesterday's confirmed regional land transport plan. We're beginning to invest in clean energy, beginning, at a, at a local level, and we're working in partnership with entities like uh, Vector and Entrust, uh, with uh, solar technology and schools, Marais, and you've seen the illumination of the Auckland Harbour Bridge as well, with solar generated from the Wynyard Quarter. We are making big inroads in walking and cycling, um, and as I term it, it's becoming just everyday transport for everyday people, just mainstream mode of movement around our city. Nothing too extreme about it. We've invested about $200 million in the last three years, and we've built kilometres of new cycleways, and we're getting to separate more, and we've increased cycle trips into the city centre via Upper Queen Street, just that section alone, by over 400% since 2013. And we've added about 52,000 new people getting in on, on, on the saddle um, and since uh, in um, 2017 alone. And that's enough, if you can picture it, enough to uh, outsell Adele at Mount Smart. So more's on the way, and I'm promising you that uh, with the confirmation of the Regional Land Transport Plan yesterday. Uh, one dear to my heart that I've been working on for far too long, it's eaten up a decade of my life, is Skypath and Seapath. 
and hopefully I'll be writing that and you'll be writing that in the summer of 21. Um, so look, lots happening there. We're future-proofing and greening our infrastructure, but not enough. Uh, we'll, we're going to crack the pace on there. Um, a lot happening there. We're daylighting streams all over Auckland. Um, we've, from Tuckanini with the Puhanui stream, uh, right through to uh, the Oakley Creek out there by Carrington. We're man managing our waste better and investing better there, shifting to a more circular economy. Community recycling centres are proving hugely popular. And, um, and of course, every, every uh, tonne that goes there is a tonne that's not going to landfill. Um, and we are also, um, Auckland is creating quality spaces for people, as you've seen in the city centre, the waterfront. We're embarking on a big waterfront reveal in the coming couple of years leading up to the America's Cup. We're enlivening our waterfronts from the Waitamata waterfront right across to the Onehunga waterfront, and we'll have a key announcement on the Onehunga waterfront uh, in the next few weeks. And from, from communities of Avondale, uh, right through to Manukau, and if Takapuna is willing, we'll even revitalise that place as well. So, um, I think you know what I mean, don't you? <laughs> All developments that uh, Panuku are undertaking, they are our placemaking and regeneration agency, and it's not about financial deliverables, it's about strategic, uh, human-focused outcomes uh, that we, we ask of them. Um, they're working to a home star standard and uh, to deliver you know, healthier and more efficient homes where they're delivering homes. And we are challenging climate change on all fronts now. We've just confirmed with our CCOs a requirement to address climate change in everything they do. It's paramount. And they got a unique letter on that um, from the Mayor's office via Ross and myself um, only just three months ago on that. So we're a member of the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group, and Mayor Phil has been over there. He's absolutely committed to, and we are all committed to, creating green and healthy streets, fossil fuel-free streets, part of that declaration. We're shifting our bus fleet to electric and decarbonising the city centre. Uh, last year, C40 bestowed upon Auckland their coveted International Waste Award. So we're winning on a few international fronts as well, but we need to continue to learn. We're doing reasonably well, but we're just out of the starting blocks. Uh, we just want to be best technical experts in the world at that, working with the best technical experts in the world, the practitioners and the city leaders. So today marks two weeks since the launch uh, of engagement on government's zero carbon bill and Auckland's climate action uh, plan. You can get involved by providing input on that and to the government, of course, uh, we welcome that. One thing I'd like to mention today as an intro is a statement of coming up, uh, I think, 10 or 11 months ago. 10 months ago, I think it was, our Prime Minister called climate change my generation's nuclear-free moment. I think it's struck a chord with many of us. It really sat in my memory very, very strongly. Um, at that time, it was a bit of a catchphrase, and it was repeated with probably not a lot of understanding. And the government have now committed to the climate Commission and James Shaw is leading a whole body of work and I'm absolutely confident that we're going to see some real change come out of that. But for me, I went back to that nuclear free moment. I was, I, I think, late teens or something like that or some, I won't tell you. I, I, rec I recall that moment anyway and, you know, it was early 70s 
Uh, that, that's what Jacinda Ardern was referring to. And my strongest memory of, of that moment, I started to reflect, and I remembered a big Norm Kirk, the then Prime Minister, and this nation, this small nation, big little nation, bottom of the world, sailing two frigates uh, with a cabinet minister aboard to the edge of the Murara blast zone. That's what she was referring to. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a catchphrase, it had meaning behind it. It meant we've got to be bold, we've all got to step up, the leadership at the top echelon has got to step up, and all the leaderships, Auckland Council, leaderships of companies, and leadership within families, leadership of individuals, we all have to step up. That's what happened back in the 70s, everybody stepped up. That action of Norm Kirk summoned the nation and it summoned the attention of the world. The big little New Zealand down the bottom of the world shifted from stand by to stand up and act. And that's what we need to do on climate change. And I'm sure that's what Jacinda is referring to. And the results immediately followed. One of the greatest challenges of our time, the G20 leaders have said of climate change. This is our generation's moment. In our time, and it's of our making, Climate change is upon us, and we have no choice but to deal with it. And that change is not limited to what we often think is the weather, droughts, uh, coastal inundation maybe. It is also about species extinction, large-scale crop failures, rampaging new diseases. It's about volatile financial markets, and it's also about the risk of armed conflict and mass migrations. And if you think the migrations that arrived on Germany's border and the other European nations was related to just conflict, think again. It was related to climate changes in Syria over about three years. And that put people into the cities, people into conflict, and then armed conflict and people on the move. So that is... A, a pretty um, dark taste of one side of climate change. But none of us are immune, and I want to emphasise that. So to all of you tonight, thank you for coming along to hear Matt, um, who's going to enlighten us now, uh, for taking the time to care about this very important topic for Auckland and the nation, to get involved, get off our backsides and do something about it. Uh, this evening will prove enjoyable, I'm sure, and very interesting. But really, I want my invitation to you is make it productive. So make it productive rather than just enjoying and interesting means to tune in tonight and take one or three takeaways from tonight and look at how you can take those takeaways out of this room tonight and take action, be it in your, your personal self, family, workplace, um, or the city. So Namihi um, and kia ora mai. Thank you, everybody, and we'll welcome Matt. All right, thank you very much, uh, Councillor Darby, much appreciated. Right, uh, let's introduce Matt Peterson now. A uh, long list of achievements too, I can tell you. Uh, he is the CEO at Los Angeles Cleantech Incubator. Uh, prior to that, uh, joining that, he was appointed as the first ever Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Los Angeles, serving as uh, CSO for four years. Uh, Matt was also the chief architect of the groundbreaking sustainable city plan and helped create the climate mayors. He also co-founded Global Green USA and led the organisation for 19 years as president and CEO. The organisation was a pioneer in greening of affordable housing, schools and cities. 
as well as helping grow the solar sector. Now, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, uh, Matt put forth a vision and mobilised resources to green the rebuilding of New Orleans. Matt is chair of the Climate Mayor's Board, a board member of Global Green USA, Habitat for Humanity of uh, Greater LA, Centre for Environmental Health and the Sir Edmund Hillary Institute for uh, International Leadership. He's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the LA Sustainability Leadership Council, and has served as an advisor to the Clinton Global Initiative on Energy and Environment, while a uh, CGI member for 10 years. It is uh, quite remarkable that you found the time to get here. <laughs> uh, it's an impressive achievement. Uh, Matt Peterson, if you could come to the stage, thank you very much. Kia ora. Good to be here with you. Thank you very much, Councillor. Thank you for the warm greetings and the great framing of your conversation. It's impressive to hear uh, what you and your colleagues are doing here in this great city of Auckland. Uh, this is my second uh, visit to your amazing, beautiful nation. My first was 10 years ago uh, to Christchurch, where I first got involved with the Sir Edmund Hillary Institute and was giving my, uh, my remarks uh, down in uh, Christchurch. And, I created an international dipl diplomatic faux pas by getting uh, then Prime Minister Helen Clark to hug uh, the President of Kiribati, which I guess which was a small diplomatic incident, but uh, it was one where I, I, I think I worked through it and uh, it was a great welcome to your nation. Uh, I have a couple questions first of all. Um, we have the, uh, it looks like the French rugby team staying at our, our hotel across, across the way. How many All Blacks fans do we have? Anybody? A few? All right. Okay, good. Good to know. A uh, couple other questions. How many people love where you live? How many people love your, your home? All right, good. How many people love humanity? Other people? Fellow, your fellow citizens? Oh, fewer, fewer hands. <laughs> Some people we don't like. That's good to know. I think we're all the same way. All right, good to know. Um, I will give you a little bonus at the end. Some of you uh, were tuned into this yesterday, but most of you weren't. Uh, I'll give you a little secret of saving the world, but that's later. First, um, I just want to share a, a, a quick little story um, that kind of brought things together for me around how we treat each other as human beings and how we treat the planet. I went to the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo twice uh, with an amazing individual, a woman named Eve Ensler, who some of you may know from her uh, work as a playwright. Uh, she wrote Vagina Monologues and some other amazing pieces of work. Uh, and Eve went there to bring several of us to see how, uh, with local partners, she was building this place called City of Joy that was providing a place for women whose lives and bodies had literally been torn apart uh, by the war and atrocity, rapes and atrocities that are happening in that part of the world. And one of the things driving that violence and those horrible acts that are being uh, forced upon women and girls, but also men and boys, uh, was the drive for getting hold of rare earth minerals that power our electronics. Uh, cobalt, uh, tin, and other rare earth minerals and what is now known as conflict minerals. Uh, and there's been some acts in the United States and other parts of the world to try to change that. But what struck me wasn't just uh, this horrible atrocity uh, going on and still going on. It was that these women I happened to have the great honor to dance with at this ceremony that opened this place called City of Joy, which houses and helps 92 women at a, at a time after their bodies have been repaired down the way at, at the Ponzi Hospital by an amazing man named Dr. McGuigie, um, that they were given their lives back uh, by their own 
McCord, that they were able to, with time and space and help and classroom training, be able to, over the six months, reclaim their lives and dignity. And many of them were going out and starting businesses. So this, to me, was the pinnacle of really seeing how we, the, the, the most acute point I could ever find in my life of how we treat the earth and how we treat other people. They come together, and we need to remind ourselves of that around fairness and equity, climate change, and that we really can move forth together in tackling equity, economy, and the environment together. It's, it's fundamental. Um, so quick story of, 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 uh, that sort of brings to life a little bit what Colin shared. I uh, started something uh, when I was running Global Green looking for citizen entrepreneurs because we need governments to act, we need corporations to act, we need cities to act, and we also need to take responsibility for a corner of our world. So when I left Global Green, I kept the idea alive, uh, and I called it Citizen E. Uh, and so my, for my 50th birthday a little over a year ago, I asked friends and family to give money to help support an individual we would find in the United States who was taking responsibility for a corner of the world. So just about a month ago, we finalized our search, we picked a winner, and her name was Bronte Velez, an amazing young woman who had decided to turn violence into hope by after she lost a friend to gun violence in the U.S., something that is really unfortunately acute in the United States versus the rest of the world. Uh, and she did that in a way that connected the dots. She said, let's take guns, melt them into shovels, and plant trees on the 50th anniversary of Mar Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in Atlanta. So she planted trees, she did that, she melted these guns with some partners, uh, turned them into shovels, planted trees throughout Atlanta, including at the, the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta. And to me, she really embodies that sense of hope and opportunity to bring together these, these crises and really a chance to heal each other and, and heal the planet. Um, so citizens, we need citizens. Bronte Velez. Um, citizens, cities, and, 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 and clean tech are the, sort of the theme I'm going to frame here for with you. But this, this next part of my journey takes me into the city of New Orleans, which Colin talked about here. Uh, this is when I was able to give then uh, uh, the head of Green Cross International. I ran the U.S. affiliate Global Green. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was Green, Green Cross International president, and I took him down to the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans, one of the most uh, vulnerable and the poorest neighborhoods in the city of New Orleans uh, that was devastated uh, by human hand of not just failure of infrastructure, but of course climate change. Storm surge and storm intensity made worse by climate change combined with the failure of, of the levees. And this whole neighborhood in the Lower Ninth Ward was just completely washed away. The lives of primarily African-American families who has homes have been passed through generations and whose income and, and lives are very vulnerable uh, and most would never return. Um, so along the way, we decided to say we're going to green the schools, we're going to green the city, we're going to, so we leveraged uh, some grant dollars from the Clinton uh, Bush Fund uh, after Katrina, uh, $2 million. We got the school district to build showcase schools with better daylight where students are shown to learn better and test better when there's better daylight, better air quality in those classrooms. We also built this uh, showcase of a home. Uh, that's now a village. I don't have a, a photo here of the final product, but this was about a decade ago where uh, the, this well-known individual partnered with us to do a design competition, uh, Brad Pitt. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and we, we then built five single-family homes, the first green homes in the Lower Ninth Ward, five lead platinum homes, 
and then Brad went on to build about another two, I think 50 to nearly 100 now. Uh, so there are more lead platinum homes, the greenest standard of homes in this neighborhood more than any other place in America. And to be honest, it had nothing to do with me or this famous guy. There was an individual named Pam DeShiel, an activist in her neighborhood, before I showed up, before Brad Pitt showed up, and said, we're going to rebuild this neighborhood to be the first carbon neutral neighborhood in America. Uh, and that was that. She built that support from the community to do it. Otherwise, we would have been these interlopers saying, we're going to force you guys to rebuild the way we want you to rebuild. She had built that community support. And that's really who's the true hero, uh, Pam DeShiel. Um, so working with cities across the country, then I turned my work to the city of Los Angeles. Uh, this building is famous, our city hall, uh, not just from the show Dragnet. Anybody remember that show? Uh, so many. Um, uh, but others, of course, where our city halls appeared as a star in uh, movies and television. Um, and really there in uh, the city, we created our first ever sustainable city plan. You can uh, find it online at plan.lamayor.org. It was the first comprehensive plan of its type for Los Angeles, focused on equity, the environment, and economy. Again, how do we make these things work together to create a better, uh, more robust city? Uh, Los Angeles may be known as the home of Hollywood and lots of other things, uh, and, but we're really, uh, really moving uh, faster on the, the path towards sustainability. Just two weeks ago, Mayor Garcetti, our current mayor, made a commitment to make LA to be carbon neutral by 2050. So our previous goal was 80% reduction over 1990 levels by 2050. Now we've moved to carbon neutral. The city is moving towards 100% clean energy. We, we started that when I was there. We're moving towards zero emissions transportation, all electric buses by 2030 uh, for the city and the county. Uh, and on and on and on about the things that we're beginning to do. Yesterday I talked about some of our building initiatives as well. Um, but while there, we did something uh, that was important. When President Obama was in the White House, we collected these mayors across the country from cities that were early adopters, leaders, uh, not just C40 cities as Auckland is, but some smaller cities, cities of 180,000 evil that were really making a difference in places like everything from Somerset, Massachusetts, to Berkeley, California, to Los Angeles, to Houston, Texas, where there was a strong mayor in this oil and gas uh, city. Um, these mayors here, Mayor Garcetti on the right, Mayor Ruggiero, Rajero of, of Knoxville, uh, Tennessee, uh, and Mayor Marty Walsh of Boston, and Mayor Turner of Houston, who's not pictured here, uh, really all came together to lead this group of mayors uh, to put wind at the back of President Obama going into the Paris Climate Agreement negotiations. Well, then what happened? We, yeah, we got a great climate agreement, then somebody else got elected to the White House we weren't so sure about. So we went from 33 mayors we sent an open letter around within two weeks after Trump getting elected, um, or some say, he who shall not be named. But, um, and we had 70 mayors all of a sudden sign this letter saying, Trump, please, President Trump, President-elect Trump, please work with us. We, cities are on the front line of climate change, but it's also where the heart of innovation is happening. These are where the solutions are on the front lines, where we're changing people's lives. We're not just filling potholes. We're putting in transit. LA just passed a $120 billion transit initiative, the largest infrastructure investment in the country. Come work with us across the country to put infrastructure in place that makes us more resilient, to fight climate change, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to protect our most vulnerable. We got silence. Months pass. We get word that he's going to uh, pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. We prepared for that moment. 
the day in the Rose Garden in the White House when he at the White House when he pulled out on June 1st of 2016, excuse me, 2017, we were ready, and we had 70 mayors that day by that time who said they were going to adopt the Paris Climate Agreement in their city. By the next day, we had 170. Within two weeks, we had 350. Now we have over 400 mayors committed to that same goal in 47 states across our country. So the voice of climate resistance and the will of action is alive in the United States of America. We will continue to lead. Yes, California is really known as a leader. There are 12 other states across the country that are joining with us. And, and not everything's perfect, just like it's not perfect here. You need a better building energy code here in Auckland and in, in New Zealand. I've heard that. We, we're, and we're going to do what we can to share our knowledge there. Uh, same in California. We're still heavily dependent on the extraction industry of oil. Los Angeles was built on oil, but that's not our future. Our future is moving to zero emissions transportation. And one of the success stories um, that we put in place, I went to this place called LA Clean Tech Incubator. This was a fun little greeting I got my first day. I welcome that. Is we, <coughs> excuse me, are focused on startup companies. So again, citizens, cities, and clean tech. These are our various solutions, some of which are Really exciting, like our first uh, electric airplane, uh, larger than two passengers that will be in the air in the world, will be by our startup Ampere. They'll have eight passenger electric airplane that can go up to 100 miles uh, in uh, by the end of the year. They're gonna do their first test flights by the end of the year. And a lot of other exciting companies. Uh, and we have this amazing campus that is a stunning example of a partnership between our municipal utility in the city of Los Angeles, between City Hall, and we're a nonprofit. They built this facility, 61,000 square foot space, clean tech, co-working space, event space, prototyping center, and it's owned by the city. They gave us a dollar-year lease, then they said, hey, go do great things. How, how rare is that? Really amazing and, and trust and, and innovation that's happening to move forward towards a cleaner future. I won't go into this. You can look at our website, laci.org, or LACI. Um, we're focused on creating jobs, cleaning our air, because our most uh, disadvantaged and poorest communities suffer the most from poor air quality, and then we're also working to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Quick little exciting announcement we just had, we're creating this partnership between utilities, the mayor, our top state regulator, and other partners to say how can we get to 100% zero emissions transportation by the time the world arrives in the Olympics, for the Olympics in 2028. So throwing down a, a bold, audacious goal, and I think that's something we need to do uh, everywhere. Um, so. We're really focused again on citizens, cities, and clean tech. Uh, excuse me. But I also promised you, it's all right, it doesn't matter, um, the secret to saving the world, right? Make sure if I got this right. Yes. New Zealand, uh, before, before I get into that, I just wanted to echo something the counselor said. Uh, New Zealand's a small but mighty country. And just as you did with the nuclear free zone and the beyond that, really putting people's lives at risk to say the right thing, not just say the right thing, but do the right thing, we need you to be bold. When you stand up and you take action in this small but not mighty nation, people notice. So when your prime minister, hopefully she's able to come to California when the governor Brown hosts his climate summit in San Francisco in the middle of September, and your mayor and your city councilors come hopefully, They've come with bold commitments that lead the world in the same way that you led on suffrage, that you led on nuclear-free zones, that you led on apartheid. Please, 
help us and humanity change the course of our future. So with that, I want everybody to stand up for a second. Secret to saving the world. Put your right hand up. Repeat after me. Let's go France. Oh, sorry. Just a little all black humor. I love my home. And I love humanity. Now give the person next to you a big hug. That's enough hugging back there. All right, so when you come to California or you go to the next conference of parties, these boring meetings, but where real commitments happen, please give the world a New Zealand hug or a hungy, I think maybe even more appropriately. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, fantastic stuff. Right. We're going to uh, bring, actually Matt, you're going to come back up if you don't mind and take the seat down the end and we'll bring up a panel now which we're going to open up to questions from uh, Slido uh, and also from the floor as well. I'll try and alternate them. And our panellists, we're very lucky we've got more international guests as well. I'd I'll, I'll like to invite CEO of the Green Building Council of Australia, uh, Romilly Madhu, if you could come up. Thank you very much. <laughs> Danusha Whippich from Z Energy. I hope I got the name right. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Rhys Jones, the, the Public Health uh, Medicine uh, Specialist and Senior Lecturer in Māori Health at the University of Auckland. And John Moreau, uh, Chief Sustainability Officer at Auckland Council. Welcome to you all. Right, if I could get things rolling. Um, John, the, we heard earlier on from Councillor Darby about some of the things Auckland was doing well. I wonder if we could you could illuminate us perhaps with some of the areas where we've got real shortfalls, where, the, where those acute problems might be so that we can think about those. Thank you for that one. <laughs> can you all hear me? Um, this one's for you, Penny Parrott, if you're still out there, because she's grading me. Um, look, I think um, Councillor Darby did a fantastic job saying what we're doing. And in fact, just three hours ago, for the first time ever in New Zealand, we launched um, our first issue for a green bond. And I think that's something that deserves another mention because what we're trying to do is say, these are the outcomes we want, much like what we did with, we want you to fund a targeted rate for the natural environment. We want you to fund a targeted rate uh, for, uh, you know, for basic, uh, the, f the fuel tax, for instance. So we want to connect outcomes to the funding source. And that's something we're doing. So not to dodge the question and talk about what we are doing, <laughs> Um, but I'm warming up for what we're not doing well. I think the material impact on climate change and why I think a lot of us in this room are here and why, what gets out of, out of bed this morning is what's at risk here and where we put our communities, how we grow, how we get around, those things are material to Auckland and Aucklanders. So I would talk hopefully a bit tactfully about um, are we actually funding the right choices for transport? Um, as Councillor Darby said, we made a historic move recently to, to actually do that. Did we go far enough? Maybe we can debate that. Um, same thing with our spatial form. Uh, you know, a great city is a dense city with options and amenities for everybody. Are we there yet? 
Maybe not. We could perhaps debate that. Um, a zero-carbon economy must be circular. Is that the case in New Zealand when we're freaked out when our recycling gets burned instead of gets uh, sent off to where it needs to go? Let's debate that. So we've got a little bit of room to grow. Very good. Danusha um, from Z Energy. Uh, I'm interested in uh, you being here from an energy company and, and the, what sort of momentum is there now coming from business on climate change? Is it real? Are we seeing a genuine change and, and urgency, if you like, from business? Yeah, so for us, this is a conversation we've been having, particularly with our business customers from our inception, you know, 2010, and we're out of conversation and into action, and so are big New Zealand businesses. So there are people who recognise that the carbon intensity of their supply chain, it's important. It's important to their customers. It's important to the international trade. So our activity around uh, the first commercial biofuels plant here in Auckland, that's a commitment to action, conversations that lead to action. Uh, looking at ride-sharing, looking at our role in mobility rather than in, in energy and saying supporting Mevo with their EV vehicles in Wellington City. These are the sorts of actions that evolve your business and create a business that's ready for climate change. Very good. Romilly, from Australian perspective, um, I heard you making some comments yesterday. I mean, I wonder, is actually Australia maybe a little bit ahead of the pack when it comes to, or a little bit ahead of New Zealand in terms of targets and getting your act together and some of this stuff? I know you could probably beat us on rugby and cricket and make numerous commentary about that. Uh, but I think when it comes to this, it, I took a number of things away yesterday from the New Zealand Green Building Council's housing summit. Um, our building code it has been in place for a really long time and it's incredibly strong. And we as the industry engage very effectively with the Australian Building Codes Board. So we've done, we raised $750,000 with six state governments and the industry to make sure the building code's upgraded next year and that a trajectory goes into place for every three years of an upgrade, aiming for net zero by 2030, and that we, um, you know, we're really driving change. At a leadership level, there's a lot, it seems to be there's a lot more collaboration in Australia. I think part of that is you have a national government and local government and you have a fragmented property industry. So I'm not, it's just an observation. In Australia, we have local, state and federal and a very tight property market. So you could get amazing impact from dealing with 15 CEOs. Eight of them sit on my board. So we're, our country has been able to achieve a lot, I think, because of some of the um, structural makeups. But I really can't stress enough the word I used yesterday was collaboration between industry and government. And it has to be genuine collaboration. And it really has worked very effectively in Australia. And, thank you. and does that extend to uh, Dr Jones um, from, a, from a public health perspective, uh, from an inequalities perspective and the impact of climate change? Uh, we hear a lot about a just transition. Um, but it seems to me that uh, those in lower socioeconomic groups are going to potentially end up bearing a much bigger cost from that transition. Do you see it as being just? Oh, it, it all depends on how we do that transition. And so I, I think that you're absolutely right that um, not only will climate change impact you know, people like Māori communities, Pacific communities, uh, low-income neighbourhoods hardest and first and worst, but also the actions that we might take to address climate change can also, you know, disproportionately affect those communities and exacerbate inequities. Um, so what we need to do is plan our climate action so that we actually maximise the, the ability to pick up on the co-benefits, so that the huge win-wins that we can get from well-designed climate action that can improve our health, that can create a more equitable society and more fair 
uh, fair societies and mitigate or minimise those negative consequences that we can get from, from poorly planned climate action. Matt, what's your advice to the people on this panel, people out there, about how to get that collaboration that we're hearing is needed from all these disparate groups so that we're all pointing in the same direction? Well, I mean, I hate to be trite, but trust is obviously the key place uh, often to start. Uh, and one of the reasons I, I, when I give talks like that, I try to end with uh, the hug as the secret to saving the world is because it's shown that oxytocin goes up when you have human contact and, and that what is what is fundamental to trust is is that connection so whether it's a handshake or a hug or a hongi uh, you know this is this is a piece of how we build trust and collaboration is only possible with some willingness as well as is some, some form of trust so uh, I think that's universal hopefully uh, in the world of, in some in the way to build trust but I think you've got to find where you do have to build that trust to find points of agreement, identify where you have uh, uh, disconnects or a, a gulf of, of disagreement, and find a, a, how you build on those areas where you agree. So I think that's true in any process. It's, it's certainly uh, my experience, and others are probably much more expert than, than I could ever be on, on that topic. But uh, so uh, on climate, uh, where, where, where do you, where do you, where can you say where we're doing well here in New Zealand? But then where do we, where do we go on, on this challenge? Okay, it's a hydroelectric dependent economy, and when drought comes, we have electricity crises here, just like we have, a, you know, our version of that in California. We have extreme weather and fires, and uh, that disrupts the electricity grid. Um, you need resiliency in the grid, and you need some distributed energy, you need some battery storage or pumped hydro storage or whatever it is to be able to have that resilient grid to be able to work through an earthquake or extreme uh, situations when you do have a drought and electricity crisis so you don't have to always turn to coal and natural gas. How do you, if you're going to move to a carbon neutral economy, you, you have to tackle these. And so how do you get people to work together? Of course, and, and the built environment is often one of the biggest sources of greenhouse gas emissions besides transport. Uh, how do you really reduce the energy load through the housing mix and find those places to build towards and throw out some big, hairy, audacious goals and see how you can work there to get there sooner. And then, yeah, you're not going to necessarily get there right away. But I think if, if you're not bold at a time like this, then it's a challenge. Tanusha, we know we've heard from Simon Bridges. He said that he wants to sign up to the Climate Commission. So we're looking at carbon budgets down the road at some point. Is that... Did you need that in business? Did you need that bipartisanship? Or are you just going to get on and do it anyway? I think it helps a number of businesses. So for our business, we made the choice to determine our own future. Uh, but for wider business in New Zealand, that certainty that's provided in the structure and the government structure enables long-term decision-making. You've got to remember, a lot of New Zealand businesses are small businesses. Um, they're people who are making decisions for today and tomorrow. To make decisions and commitments that are 10 years in the future, they need to know that there's not going to be a flip-flop around them, that they can make commitments, make choices around um, how they're going to you know, uh, de-intensify the carbon in their chain or invest in carbon circles with clarity and certainty. All right, I'm going to bring in some uh, Slido questions that are coming in there. Uh, John, the interesting one here, in light, of the, in light of the issues around central government, but will Auckland Council propose a regional carbon budget this is from Nick Bishop, by the way, versus sector budgets that cross regions for the zero carbon bill. So it's an interesting idea, isn't it? I mean, are you going to have your own carbon budget? 
Yeah, thanks, Nick, for the question, if you are here. Um, look, I, um, we are right smack dab in the middle of this thing, and that's what's really exciting. Um, just two weeks ago, as Councillor Darby said, we launched our engagement on our local climate action plan alongside central government's zero carbon bill. To me, that's pretty exciting because we're saying, just in the spirit of trust and collaboration, let's do this together. And it's great to hear also that you know, the opposition, Simon Bridges, says, yep, we're, we're going to sign up for this. So it's pretty much all hands on deck, and we've agreed that. Now what? Um, in the Auckland context, we would be foolish not to align with an ambitious central government goal. That's been laid down quite clearly by the Prime Minister, by the Climate Minister James Shaw. So we will undoubtedly want to align to that. They're also talking about sector targets. We would want to align with that. And in fact, um, when we talk about our material emissions in Auckland, it's transport, folks. It's how you got here today. It's the choices you have to get home. Um, it's how you keep you and your family safe where you go. It's about transport. So if we don't tackle the material impacts through carbon budgets, we won't really be cracking the problem. Dr Jones, would you expect those carbon budgets to have some sort of subsidies for low-income New Zealanders? Um, ab absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, when we look at a lot of the actions that we need to take to address climate change, um, carbon budget and, and particularly, you know, putting a price on carbon is almost always regressive. It almost always impacts on low-income communities, those who are already struggling, those who are going to be hit by climate change hardest um, the most. And so what we need to do is the, when we're um, using the revenue from those sorts of uh, mechanisms is reinvest that in, in ensuring that we don't exacerbate those inequities. Um, and I would also pick up on, on John's earlier kind of questioning around are we going far enough? And I think, and thinking about the level of ambition that we have both you know, within the, the zero carbon bill um, but also more locally within Auckland, and, and I'd just put out the challenge there that I think our level of ambition is nowhere near where we need to be. Um, we should be aiming for zero carbon in the 2030s at the very latest. Um, and, and I think a lot of the targets we have and a lot of the sort of ways that we think about going about addressing those, those challenges are really not even in the ballpark of where we need to be. Romilly, in Australia, what, what, what sort of targets are you uh, 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 the most, is that a target you'd be going for, 2030? Where, and where is your government's leadership in comparison to, to or, or let's put it down to city level leadership as well. Can you give us some comparisons? Sure. So um, the federal government's quite interesting in that we have a conservative government, but we have, as the Green Building Council and along with Neighbours, have done two things which is interesting with our federal government, considering they're so conservative. One, we're becoming a pathway on the National Construction Zone and Construction Code, and I've made it quite clear that there's a trajectory in place. The other is we are the deemed to satisfy on the um, National Carbon Offset Scheme. And so Neighbours and Greenstar are um, partners in that. But at the same time, our federal government's probably not going hard enough. So if you look at the local and state governments, all of them have come out with incredibly um, you know, audacious and ambitious goals. Um, Adelaide's a great example. They came out and said, we are going to be the first city, and so I give this challenge to John. Adelaide has said, we're going to be the first carbon neutral city. And the mayor went, don't know how we're going to get there, but we're going to do it with you. And, they, and we are a partner to that. And they have basically made the bold statement made the target and then worked with the community and the state government because the state government had nowhere to go. 
Once Adelaide had made that announcement, they were kind of like, they'd look silly if they didn't support it. Um, ACT government, which is seen as a quasi-local government, is basically going carbon neutral. It has got the most amazing, uh, that's Canberra, it has the most amazing um, wind farms and solar farms and has just gone incredibly boldly at what it's going to do. So it's ignored the federal government and just taken a really high leadership approach. And all our local governments are doing some fantastic and mandating um, neighbours in Greenstar and, and taking leadership seriously. But when it comes to net zero, it seems to be new builds by 2030 and existing buildings by 2050 and it's just and the industry's done the same like they've all just set it down and said that's what we're doing great look here's one that's coming from Slido. I'll just I might throw this at Matt to see what he thinks because it's an interesting one um, it, it says how do you include the disability sector in your plans when so many of the climate change initiatives are for able-bodied people is that a something that you've thought about in terms of your, your thinking Matt and your experience well, the, the, what it makes me think about is, uh, you know, disadvantaged communities, uh, whatever, uh, or uh, whether they're able-bodied people or uh, who face challenges that we need to uh, anticipate. Um, uh, just to, to, I'll come back to that in a second, but I wanted to talk about uh, your earlier question around uh, our, our poorest, our lowest income families and communities they are disproportionately burdened both with the impacts and the costs. And what we've done in California is with our cap and trade revenues, made sure 25% of those billions of dollars every year are invested in low income disadvantaged communities and that we give them additional incentives based on income uh, levels to be able to buy, uh, you know, if we get people who buy a used pickup truck to have a gardening business, how do we get them the incentives to be able to afford a cleaner burning uh, vehicle or even an electric vehicle if possible, and so we're allowing sort of double counting of incentives to be able to make it easier for that. Um, back to that, the fundamental question, I think that uh, when we were working with Habitat for Humanity, a volunteer-based uh, home building organization that, that works with families, one of the things that we looked at was resource efficiency. And whether you're in a wheelchair or you're eventually going to become an elderly person, uh, where you're challenged, uh, we need to anticipate those needs regardless of who's going to live in that home from the beginning and be, a be able to have you know, a, a place to bolt in a, a bar in the bathroom so you can hold yourself up getting out of the bathroom and not have to rebuild the wall. Um, and simple things like that and having more uh, lower level uh, light switches. So it's, it's not really square to the question, I don't think, but it is a different way of thinking and approaching the challenge. So we, we, we put resource efficiency in together with the realities that somebody may become disabled or uh, challenged in terms of their ability uh, as they get older to, to move about. So how do we put those things in from the beginning? Danusha, um, Z Energy, uh, you've been sort of in the climate space for a while now, which is often a bit kind of intuitive given you're an energy company, but tell us about the, the you have to make a profit, you know, I mean, you, the costs of doing the climate change side of things, do you see it as a cost or do you see it as an opportunity where, or is it something you see as part of your, your overall brand, so you write it off that way, how does it work? It's not a write-off, it's an investment, so the, our business needs to evolve and climate change is a way to engage with volatility, it's a way to expand your conversations, your inclusive conversations with the concerns of others. The um, conversation I had earlier with someone is it's amazing what you can repurpose from our history. The things that we know how to do well, analysis, insight, forecasting, 
and repurpose them for what we're doing now around climate change. So our white papers on mobility, our discussion around how will people move, we're less concerned about what we do today and really concerned about being and really excited about being part of the solutions for tomorrow. So all the skill set that we have, all the things that we've learned how to do, we can use them to take on this challenge, to work with everyday people. We see everyday people 65 million times a year. They talk to us, they work with us, they visit our stores. We work with big New Zealand business. We have a massive opportunity. So for us, it's all about investment. John, there's a few questions that have come in for the council. That's why we're here. Uh, yep. um, this one says, uh, this one's from Kath Dewar, and it says, good stuff, but when will council waste work get to ditch the single-use plastics at venues, e.g. RTL centre, plastic cups at water coolers? Um, I, I raise this, I'll do this question because it is a sort of a, it's something quite tangible and quite uh, small, but people like, are, are getting pretty serious about with plastics. Com completely broadsided by this question, I had no idea it was going to come up, it's not topical at all. Um, <laughs> So just before I get there, I just wanted to pick up on something Denusia said, and actually something that Oteni said in the opening. And I think it's back to, to knowledge, actually. There's something really strong there about knowing what we need to do and actually knowing what the impacts are going to be. I also wanted to take the opportunity to shout out my team, um, all of which have worked really hard on something that actually has us have a stronger command of that knowledge. So we just recently commissioned, along with our CCOs, along with almost all units in council that deal at all with climate change, um, NIWA, to forecast what the climate impacts look like for Auckland over the next 100 years, um, various scenarios, things like soil moisture, things like temperature, things like sea level rise, rainfall, what does that look like for Auckland? That's the knowledge we actually need to make better decisions, um, and I just wanted to pick up on that point from the opening and also from Dinusha. Um, on plastic bags, let's talk about taking the tangible that we touch every single day and using that as almost a commitment, a personal commitment to do a couple things. One is just do the right thing. You know, we, we actually do need to do that. So I'll take that on council. I've got feedback by email today about that exact thing from a council employee who was disturbed by the fact we're not doing it well internally. I just outed us, okay? If we can't do it, how can we expect the rest of Auckland to do it? So point taken. But I ask everybody to make the connection between that one individual act and actually the bigger picture. That plastic bag is part of an ecosystem of production, consumption, waste, that we don't think about very often until we touch it. So every time you touch a plastic bag or a disposable cup, think about what goes into making that, the energy, the people, the smarts, and just command that we do that differently. Stand for the fact we need to do this differently. Maybe right now we don't have a good choice. We only have bad and less bad. But actually, let's commit ourselves to thinking about the bigger picture. That's an independent, almost a, um, it's a political act. You know, and it's, it's maybe a little bit, uh, uh, you know, symbolic at this point. But let's make that an act that connects us to the, biggest, the bigger picture. So can I just add in there, um, Woolworths in Australia, as of tomorrow, has banned plastic bags. So it's also on the retailers and you as consumers to use your voice. Uh, so and Woolworths, obviously, with Coles is our, our biggest retailer. And the consumers use their voice and so then others will follow. So it's also, if there's any retailers in the room, why don't you ban the plastic bags? So we actually just made that move ourselves in, and to sort of link the two points together. It's a really poignant consumer and customer experience. And the back-end logistics to make a simple idea happen, whether it's removing plastic bags or recycling or designing your rubbish bin, how you design your rubbish bin determines how much people will recycle. 
And it's that level of consciousness in your business, that willingness to engage with an issue really deeply, not just, oh, I should do some recycling. I should do some recycling, design it to make it easy and attractive. You know, I should give a reason, you know, make, make it easy and enjoyable for people to do it. And then I need to talk to all my back-end suppliers because maybe they don't go to Timaru as much as they go to central Auckland. Maybe I'm going to need to work with them how they build their business. So we've worked to build businesses to help us deliver these sustainable outcomes. I want to be a bit controversial, could I just say, if we focus just on plastic bags, I'm, I'm going to try to be a little different here and say that's actually, from a climate perspective, it's a huge global ocean health perspective and marine fishery perspective, huge important thing for a coastal country like New Zealand. But for climate, and, unless you take it to the bigger picture and the bigger system, it won't matter, really. All right, then, green roofs. Uh, this uh, person asks, can they deliver widespread benefits, uh, can deliver widespread benefits to climate change? Does Auckland Council have any initiatives to encourage developers and building owners to create green roofs? I'll open that up to, to the panel in general. Um, Ronald, you might have a view on that. Do they work? Do they, are they a good thing? They are fantastic things. What so, are they for a start? Okay, well, I'll, I'll just, um, so green, it's not just green roofs, it can be green facades as well. So it either can be green roof on the, on the top of the roof, but um, with um, phrases in uh, Sydney at UTS, the whole building, uh, One Central Park, is like a garden, like the whole facade is a garden. The reason it's really important is we all know population's increasing and we, per population, are losing our green space. Open space is different to green space. And green space is really, really important around the air um, effectiveness in a city and the air purity and also around um, just, you know, livability in the city. And our kids need to have the green space. So what City of Sydney have done is they have put it into their plan for green roofs and they've helped by planning to ensure that basically Sydney should look like just one big forest. Our buildings shouldn't look like a building, they should just look like forests. So there's ways that council can do this, but they're really great for a building because it's like a double or triple facade on a building. It, it literally is like cooling the building down. It has such fantastic impact both on the building, the people in the building and the city. Three, three quick points. We've got three green roofs at council facilities, or sorry, five maybe. Not a huge number compared to the facilities we have, so hold us accountable there. They work. You've got to be smart and clever about it, but they work, so there's a huge opportunity there. And as part of something that will be rolled out relatively soon, our urban forest strategy as council considers in an urban environment that green roofs are part of the urban fabric, or of the green fabric, not just street trees, which are hugely important in parks, but also green roofs. Huge opportunity. It's an interesting issue. So if we head, to, head towards a point where, uh, is it, Matt, is it at LA looking at compulsory solar panels for new builds? This is going to raise, an issue that cropped up yesterday, is going to raise the cost of building potentially. Not, maybe it comes down over time. But Reese um, Jones, for, again, for low-income New Zealanders, how, how can they sort of contemplate a solar power uh, situation when they're struggling to get a house? Well, absolutely. I mean, um, a, a lot of the things we're talking about, I think, are, you know, very much potentially things that could increase inequities. And, um, and for a lot of low-income families, you know, even the, the dream of home ownership is unrealistic. And, and to think then of, you know, what about even more expensive um, housing, it, it's a huge issue. So I think, I mean, one thing I would say is that in any of the strategies that we're undertaking, um, if we're not involving Māori 
Pacific communities, other disadvantaged communities. Uh, you know, we, we had the question earlier about um, the disability community. Um, you, you know, I think the key there is to involve those communities in the solutions and not just in a token consultation way, but in a genuine partnership. And through doing that, we'll find solutions that can pick up on the win-wins. Well, let, let me throw that to yeah. Matt, and maybe you could shed some light on that in terms of engaging with lower income communities, with broad range of communities on, on some of those green builds and those sorts of things. How do you do that in a genuine way that isn't just tokenism? Yeah, so when I first started work, uh, I mentioned Habitat for Humanity was a volunteer and uh, starting in 1991 with them as an organization and we were trying to uh, create some greener, healthier homes because I, I, as I encountered green building, I thought to myself, well, shouldn't that be where we deploy it first? Uh, the families that have the most uh, problems with asthma, they live in the most polluted neighborhoods and their indoor air quality is often the worse than the outdoor air quality. The energy bills affect them more than anybody else proportionally. Healthcare costs affect them more proportionally. Transportation costs. So why don't we reduce that burden? Uh, and you come across this argument, like if we spend one more penny on a window, that means a penny that's not going into additional unit of housing. Well, we're also burdening that family with higher energy bills, worse air quality, more healthcare costs, more time off from work, lost wages, it's a downward spiral. So we have to balance it and be able to approach that together. And that's where we focused our energy on incentives and really trying to work with the building industry and affordable housing to change that. So I think you've got to be able to approach it together because it's a longer term benefit um, and find ways to reduce those costs but, but also put incentives in place. And, but one of the things to your question that we discovered when we start, started working with the housing authority, which is public government housing, is the residents said to us, oh, we love trees, but when they're in the center of the courtyard in our housing, that means a shooter could stand, hide in that tree and shoot down at us. When you've got uh, lights, you need to make sure they're protected so nobody takes them out. So you do need to engage people and think about it. Now, that doesn't mean you get rid of trees, no, but you find the right kind of foliage and trees that will people are more comfortable with and be able to, to work through it. Can I just pick up a point yeah. on um, disability? We created a voluntary standard a number of years ago called Livable Housing Australia and it's for the aged and the disabled. And so when people are building houses, they either have um, bronze, silver or gold uh, and it really has forced our industry when it comes to homes to really think about how they're designing and building those houses for the future so people can um, stay in their home if they're aged. And it's all those things that you need to think about because we do have a lot of people uh, in our society that are you know, uh, either disabled or aged and the houses, we need to think differently to how we're used to. And it's really because it was an industry and government um, collaboration, it has been really great for going forward. And then picking up the public housing. In Australia, when the government's put out that they want the industry to build new public social um, housing, it has got to be to a Green Star standard. So it's making sure that the energy and water bills are so significantly reduced because they're getting the same houses as other people are getting. So it's just making sure they're inclusive and there's equity in how we're building. Now we've got about 15 minutes left or so, so if there's any questions in the audience, we do have um, people with microphones at the back and we could maybe take a few, start taking a few from the audience. As people go up there, can I just add to something Romilly just said? Thinking about access and age communities, there's a couple key points that we need to really keep in mind as a city. One is that 
providing people the chance to age in place is critical. And it's actually something that is uh, mentioned quite explicitly in the Auckland plan that was just refreshed. Um, that's a great community where you can actually be in a place for your whole lifespan. And then beyond housing, beyond actually the house, thinking about equity in terms of public space and safety and transport choice is critical for a city that's going to be world class. All right, have we got a question at the back there? Yeah. Yes, I was wondering, um, is there a conversation going on about having individual carbon rations that one could then sell if you didn't drive a car? So that way, if you were poorer, you'd end up getting paid. And if you were richer, you would pay your way. But this ration would go down over time till the 2030s. Interesting idea. But it opens up to the panel. Well, I, you know, there's been talk of carbon budgets uh, individually, and the best you could ever find was an online calculator to tell you what your carbon intensity was or your carbon footprint. And uh, if you travel by air, your, your carbon footprint skyrockets. Uh, and that's a challenge. But to your point, I think one of the things that's interesting about technology is so people uh, about here, but I would guess it's been a topic of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Well, the real un underlying innovation there is blockchain technology. And we are seeing startup technologies and startups come to us saying, all right, we're using blockchain. So if you have solar panels on your house, you could actually sell that to someone else and that chain of custody is there and real. And utilities are beginning to think about, all right, we don't need to put in a meter every time we put in an EV charger. We could give you a lower rate using blockchain technology because we know that you're using it tied to your charging your car. Or if you are a lower income individual in your carbon intensity and you could demonstrate that through blockchain technology, maybe you could actually do that where you have a verifiable or lower footprint that can be then create a credit bank that you could then sell to someone and get some income. It's a, it's a possibility. It's becoming more reality with, with the potential of blockchain. And I think that's a fascinating idea because I, I look at, you know, what are the sort of current challenges you face inside a business. So we know one of the simplest ways that we can reduce our day-to-day -day carbon impact is by having great telephone calls, great teleconferences, no need to travel, the quality is the same. And we ran a, we ran a scheme where you sort of, you know, um, self-nominated every time you didn't get on a plane. You said, I didn't do this meeting face-to-face. -face. I called the client. We agreed. We've gone from quarterly meetings to quarterly meetings, but only every other one is face-to-face. -face. Like, we, we had that conversation. What we never brought into it was this idea of making that value move in the company. Like, you know, giving people the opportunity to then invest that credit somewhere else with other people. So I think it's a really, it's a fascinating idea that could go beyond that concept and you could employ it to create conversation and behaviour change right now. All right, another question up the back here. Uh, hi, thanks uh, for, the, for the questions and answers so far. I was wondering, I uh, would like to direct uh, uh, some attention and discussion regarding our food production systems within the Auckland area and how, uh, what council thinking is uh, regarding how we farm, how we produce food, how we get it to the city. Because uh, uh, as um, many people understand and, and know and talk about, food and farming is one of our major problems and how we get it in a sustainable way. Anyone like to take that? I'll just do the quick little punt here because I think it's relevant to every city and, and perhaps every business. Um, Hugh, I, I'd say it's a problem, but um, boy, we do food pretty rampantly here in New Zealand, right? Um, it's pretty amazing the capacity we have to generate food. Now granted, we sell most of that overseas and make money off of it, but I think the architecture is there to actually do some remarkable things with food and food systems. 
we might not have it right. I think your point's a very, very good one. Your question's a good one. Um, you know, when we're uh, taking some of our best soils out of commission by um, maybe converting them to urban, um, that's a problem we can't kind of walk back from. Um, when we're thinking about um, how far something needs to travel between farm to plate, that's a problem. So I think y there are a lot of problems here, but we're in the position because we know food here in New Zealand to do it really, really well. If I can just, um, if I can just add to that, I, I think um, I, I talked earlier about win-wins that you can get from climate action for, for health and for equity and for a lot of other things. Um, certainly food is, is one of those areas where, you know, if we can reduce our reliance on meat-based products and, you know, think about the balance of our, our food production, um, we can reduce emissions but also really improve health outcomes by shifting to a more plant-based diet. Uh, and also moving to more locally based food production and, and I'm really interested in the, the idea of food sovereignty and, and the idea that we can you know, uh, get, get more self-determination, we can, we can become healthier, we can reduce our emissions from food transport and things as, as well as you know, um, economic benefits as well. California is uh, one of the largest producers of agricultural products uh, uh, and foodstuffs uh, anywhere in the United States. Uh, there has been a huge rush uh, to taking the Central Valley and planting almonds, and they're a huge consumer of water. And as California has is, is seen extreme drought the last several years, and Southern California is very vulnerable, and there's this argument of, you know, we're sending so much, using so much water for agriculture and sending so much water to, to Los Angeles. We're a completely water -depend, imported water-dependent city, but we're changing that. We're working on changing that. Um, it's all part of it, and that the electricity that is used to move that water both to the farms and to the cities is enormous. I will say, and it's something we've got to think about, uh, and, and the methane that's produced off of particularly any animal uh, protein-based uh, economy is enormous, and we need to think about that and how we address it uh, through consumer behavior as well as biodigestion and better ways to manage these places. Uh, the agriculture community in California, the Central Valley, has become one of the largest producers of solar PV electricity in our economy. They've had rapid growth. They see it as an opportunity to reduce their, their you know, hedge their future risk in terms of uh, electricity costs, as well as produce uh, revenue. So I'm going to do an Australian-New Zealand thing to an American. Um, some I don't know if the Americans have back, done Matt. this, <laughs> but the Canadians, um, both in Vancouver and Toronto, have urban farms. So they look at that space, and I'm sure it happens in the US, but I'm just being cheeky. Um, but uh, in Toronto, where I was two weeks ago, the, the space that's not being used, the uh, local government releases it out at a very small rate to the local community to farm. And so they have vegetable patches uh, to grow herbs and vegetables and so on and so forth. And in Vancouver, where you see the big ro roads and anywhere that there's land, uh, in Vancouver there's these fantastic urban farms. And in, um, in Australia, they're building herb patches in, when you've got a tree and they've put a, a you know, box around it and there's herb patches and it's an edible garden. So as you're walking down the street, you can grab you know, whatever you want to grab out of the edible garden. So I think there's some really funky and fun things you can do to bring urban gardens back into our cities. Can I build off Romilly's fun? I mean, the whole food thing does a couple of big things, which is 
back to what Matt started with in the beginning. Um, we like humanity, don't we? Or we love humanity. I mean, it's an opportunity for us to do something that's really essential, whether you're talking energy or transport or food or whatever. It's to decentralize and really localize that system because it feels good and it happens to be more climate resilient and more low carbon. So there's a whole suite of reasons we want to do that and it, it's partly related to fun as well. It's a question that's come in actually, is what, it was to Matt, but I can open it up to you all. Why is local government more engaged than central government on climate change challenges? And perhaps it is because you mentioned, but Matt, do you have any view, Romilly? Well, it's really true. I mean, if you hear my former boss and mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, and a number of other mayors, uh, cities are on the front lines of climate change. The impacts, whether it's sea level rise and the eastern seaboard, uh, the Gulf Coast, uh, and our lowest income neighborhoods are most vulnerable in, in these communities. Extreme heat, we have, that's one of our climate crises in California. We have hotter summers and uh, longer fire seasons uh, that build on that extreme drought, all these implications of climate change. And cities are in the front lines as uh, these, you know, the fires and lead to flooding and mudslides in our cities and near cities. Um, so that's why, you know, cities feel it the most, our residents feel the most, and that's where also innovation's happening. And uh, we're looking at this zero emissions future for Los Angeles, and, you know, we've got vertical takeoff and lift landing coming, or in our case, what's been innovative is something that nobody saw, which are electric scooters. So we've been inundated with birds and limes, and I'm sure they're coming if they haven't come to Auckland yet, but they, people love them. They go up to 11 miles per hour. They have changed people's behavior. They are uh, uh, really uh, something that, but cities don't know what to do with them. And so now cities are catching up. And this kind of innovation, so we're all focused on autonomous future. Well, the game changer right now is these electric scooters that people are riding about. So people are doing without helmets and they're riding in the middle of the streets. So you've got safety, they're leaving them everywhere on the sidewalks. Yes, people love them, but they're also a challenge. So I think cities are where these innovations are happening, whether they're intentional or not. I'll just see if there's, sorry, I'll just see if there's any more questions, if you've got any more questions from the floor, but I'll take, sorry, carry on, Denisha. I was just going to say, if you think about it, there's a disconnect between us as citizens with our federal politicians, like there really is, I mean, the chance of any of us walking into the door quickly with a federal politician is low, but there's a dis we're so close <laughs> to our local government because our councillors, we've got access to them, and it really is about access, and I think which is why cities are leading all over the globe is because they're the ones that are being affected, that are communicating so closely with the um, individuals and the citizens, whereas when you get up to state government for us and then federal government, yeah, there is a disconnect. I wonder whether we need different things from our local governments and our national governments in the same space. So a national issue is somebody's real challenge and real problem. Um, it's not a hypothetical discussion or something they need to do something about. It's something they live every day. So that engagement across our different sectors of government moving in the same direction and looking at who can effectively make the changes that are needed. I, I, would, I was just going to add quickly that it's more of a call to action to those in this room. Right now, you can actually have your say on the zero carbon bill. You can go and say what you want for the government to do in terms of its, its ambition around zero carbon for the nation. Um, and at the same time, you can actually get involved with us as we develop our plan for what Auckland should look like. So it's really all hands on deck in this room. I'd like that commitment from almost everybody in the room to be able to do that with us. All right, great. We've got a question over here. Hello. Um, I've got family in Australia, and I find in the Gold Coast, they spend so much more time inside with air conditioning. Now, I love Auckland, 
And I think we're moving to the ideal climate, where the real Goldilocks place, not too hot and not too cold. And you can be outside in balmy weather all the way from late October, November, all the way through to May. So in fact, I'm probably using less electricity and things because I'm not having to use the heat at the same degree during winter. And because it's so beautiful during the summer, I'm not having to need the air conditioning. So it's not always the argument, uh, if you look at the whole world, there is an issue. But in any particular place, there are in fact may be benefits. And we've always got to be a bit careful with the message that it's all doom and gloom because some areas are actually going to benefit from it. Uh, even in regards to farming and things like that as well. I think it's a good point, but the, the uncertainty it throws up is a disbenefit. And so, you know, there are four specific storms that hit us this year in the last six months that we were pretty surprised about, you know, one in 100 year events. And so, yes, there are some great benefits of a climate that we all feel more comfortable in, but we can't predict this stuff very well anymore. And that's going to be a challenge to our businesses and our communities. I've got a question over here in the middle. Thanks very much for your great comments. I'm Lindsay Wood. I run a company called Resilience Limited. I'd like to pick up on John's comment. I'm, I'm sorry, um, Reese's comment about us not setting the bar high enough. And I think there are a lot of areas we can think outside the square where we, we, we're just too scared to tinker with our lifestyle. For example, I like the suggestion about the carbon credits before. I think we need to give more thought to that. But Vancouver, I understand, has encouraged, for example, businesses to move to a four-day week suddenly you're only transporting 80% of the time and then you're also um, freeing up the traffic on other days. When the school times are either holiday time or school hours shift a bit, we wind up with suddenly a great drop in transport congestion. I'd be really interested to know the comments of the panel on the, the potential of those and whether they're being explored or not. Thank you. Um, so I, I really like the idea of um, thinking outside the square and I'm going to take this in a perhaps slightly different direction than you might have been expecting. But, um, I mean, I think one of the things that we are absolutely not doing enough of is um, valuing indigenous knowledges and ways of engaging with the environment in this space. Um, you know, I think of climate change as essentially the, the inevitable conclusion of a sort of Western-style civilization that's about exploiting the Earth's resources as a commodity and, and dumping the waste. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, we have... Māori culture here, we have a, a culture that's uh, all about um, relationships with the natural environment, about a very different way of thinking in this space. Um, it, it does remind me of, I was in um, COP21 in Morocco a couple of years ago, and seeing the difference between what was happening in the formal negotiations versus what was happening in the Indigenous Peoples Forum, um, if you could have switched those rooms, we'd probably solve the climate crisis uh, tomorrow. So uh, it's about like really uh, decolonizing and I think you know if you're not a an advocate for indigenous rights for decolonization then you're not a climate advocate do you have reconciliation <laughs> do you have reconciliation action plans here so we uh, work with reconciliation Australia and we have to have a we, well we don't have to but it's voluntary but we all have reconciliation action plans so it's uh, indigenous supply chain how we're going to employ indigenous um, how we're going to, for us as the Green Building Council, we have to talk about it in our sector. So what are we going to use to, to think about Indigenous thinking into the design and construction of our buildings and cities? And in Australia, it's really, really big. If you don't have a reconciliation action plan, it's called a wrap. It's like, 
Well, where are you going and what are you doing? Yeah, so I think if I, you know, I take that comment and bring it into the business world. Uh, diversity and, and inclusion, you know, there's no point having five people around the table discussing something who actually all have the same perspective. That's not a discussion, it's a reiteration of the ideas around the table. So having a focus and a clear plan on how you're going to bring different perspectives into the room, and that's something that we have been focusing on for the last year. And it's, it's a challenge because it's really easy to, to bring people into your community that have similar ideas to you. So uh, how do you critically challenge yourself? How do you hear new ideas? Every business can apply that thinking now. There's, no, there's nothing else that needs to be done. And your conversation around Vancouver, um, my experience often is if you stand back, instead of trying to solve the problem, the problem is traffic, um, think about what really matters here. Like why am I even having a conversation about this? Why does it matter that we're all going in to work at the same time and causing these traffic jams. And then the conversation shifts. It also becomes a really accessible conversation and human conversation. Because you don't have to be an expert in traffic flows and timing of light signals to work out what matters. You need to be a human who wants to be with other humans doing some things and also likes to live a particular way. So that for me, when we think about what we can do as, as private citizens and in, in, in organisations when we go to work and challenge each other about what is what we could do better, uh, come at it from what really matters here, why am I engaged in this, and go and find opinions that, you know, ruffle your feathers or make you think differently, give you pause for thought. That's a lovely way to finish it. Thank you very much to the panel. We've just sneaked over our time uh, limit, but thank you very much to uh, Romilly Merdew, uh, Danish, uh, Danusa, sorry, Whippich. Got that right, hopefully. Uh, Dr. Rhys Jones and uh, John Moreau, and of course Matt Peterson. But I'd like to ask um, Andrew Eagles, CEO of the New Zealand Green Building Council, to come up for a vote of thanks. Yes. I haven't seen it arrive. Baby girl. Oh. I was too busy, didn't check my phone. A baby girl, there you go. Well, nobody stole my thunder there. <laughs> Thank you. There he was sitting in his chair thinking, I might get to say it. I might get to say it. <laughs> hey, um, no, no, that's fine. Um, isn't, it, isn't it wonderful? And, you know, reflecting just on that, let's see if we can segue into this. Um, don't we want a better society for our children and our grandchildren? And one of the reflections I've got from this really brilliant panel and brilliant Councillor Darby and also great management by Corin Dan, I thought this evening, was um, it's simple to say, oh, it's climate and that's a challenge for us, right? And there's costs. So we go, costs, costs, that feels really bad. When I listen to these people, what I hear is, hey, active transport. I hear healthier homes. I hear more connectivity with people. I hear dealing with inequality. And I think that if we can keep up with that, we can do things um, that are really, really impossible. So um, I wanted to say thank you to the panel. I've been asked to just reflect a little bit. Um, Councillor Darby, huge respect for all of your work. Let's be bold. I loved it. And um, great work, I think we need. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because we're asked to comment, and I get asked to comment on how we're doing. We want to say, you know, it's good. The green bond is good. The sky, um, the sky pathway is great, and the work on transport is good. It is good. Maybe it's five or ten percent of what we need to do, but we need to 
to still celebrate that. Matt, trust, audacious goals. And also, you know, what did we have? 20 mares. And then someone came along and was a bit hopeless. What happened? 460 mares. Come on. You know, let's keep pushing. Reese, we need to think about inequality. You know, and I, I think this is so valid. The Productivity Commission has said that to get to where we need to, carbon price uh, per ton of carbon needs to go to $250 per ton. So that's going to hit energy, that's going to hit food prices, that's going to hit our, our bills. So we really do need to think. And I love Matt's. We've got this brilliant thing where Reese raises an issue. 20 minutes later, we get from Matt, oh, by the way, 25% of our carbon tariffs went to help those in lower socioeconomic groups. So there's a potential in all of this. And then an audience member, how about carbon, um, carbon rationing? Wow, look at that. Because then, actually, the carbon that someone in a lower socioeconomic group doesn't spend has a value. The thing I get excited by is actually there's a potential to build a far better Aotearoa through this challenge, and, and I think that's interesting. Danusha, I love using our, our skill set to adapt to the changing climate, and um, this isn't a spend, it's an investment where we make this challenge, the, these changes. And John Murray, huge hat off to your team for the um, analysis, 100 years ahead. I mean, what, what foresight, we need that for um, the Prime Minister's grandchildren. <laughs> Uh, Romilly, you know, the Australians that come over here, she said, let's use our voice to drive change. And I think that's a challenge for all of us for actions with supermarkets, you know. And it's true, my dad, um, he's a raving right winger. And he said, he, I'm not so sure about this climate change thing, Andrew. I said, thanks, Dad, that's really good. <laughs> you, you know, dad, you know that's what I do. <laughs> um, and he, and, but, but you've got to listen. So we're sitting there watching TV. People said, ban plastic bags. And he said, yep, that's kind of good. But why don't people call on supermarkets to stop using them? Well, there's a truth there, isn't there? We need to say to our supermarkets as well. We need to drive everything. Um, and I really liked um, Matt talking about you know, better, better homes and buildings and that type of thing. So look, I just want to thank everyone involved. Then I've got an exercise for you. You've got some key. You've got homework, so you're not getting away. So first of all, um, uh, kia ora, Corin Dan. Um, you know, I just, we had a conference yesterday, and it was huge, and Joe Duggan just rocked it. But not everything goes really smoothly, and Corin was just so smooth through all of that. So we really appreciate your stewardship tonight. Thank you to Matt Peterson for his um, keynote, and also for your son coming with you. We really appreciate the support there. Um, what a brilliant panel. I, I think I'm just really honoured to be on the stage with all of you. Thank you to Councillor Darby. Continue your good fight. Thank you to all of you and those who are online uh, watching. I hope that's been of use. Um, and you're now still watching us despite seeing pictures of the Prime Minister's baby. Thank you to Auckland Conversations. We've got a long way to go, but you know, our, our council is starting this conversation and that's really there's something to be said for that. Um, the next Auckland Conversations event will take place on the 2nd of August. This event will be in partnership with Auckland Transport where we discuss healthy streets for Auckland. Now, your challenge, um, I would ask you to stand up. <coughs> We're doing a double act, uh, Matt. Okay, so there's action we can take. We, we heard about it. We can lobby. We can call the Zero Carbon, you know, we can push for the Zero Carbon Act. 
We can support active transport. We can, um, if you work in a building, you can ask about neighbours or Green Star. But here's something you can do to connect a little bit as well. I fundamentally believe that this is a huge challenge. But aren't we lucky? Aren't we bloody lucky to have a challenge that's worth it? To, to work towards this for a better society for all of our people and children. So, I'd ask you to raise your right hand. First of all, yell yes if you were inspired tonight. Yes! Yell it louder! Yes! Okay, now I want you to turn to the person next to you. Okay? I want you to say, you too? You've got someone to high Okay. Has everybody got somebody? I want you to high five and say, now let's get this done! <laughs> Kia ora, thanks so much. Safe travels, have a good evening. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios. 